0: Hey, and welcome to A New History of Old Texas. As we get ready here to go back in the field for another three weeks of surveys related to the battlefield of Medina, I thought I'd release this one other speech that I just did to the San Antonio Conservation Society that I felt nicely summed up where the research has brought us so far on the Battle of Medina, on the events leading up to it, uh, and on some exciting new clues and new connections that we've made related to the evidence that we've turned up related to the battlefield. So enjoy, and I'll touch base here in a few months. Thanks. I start this story back on September uh, September 16, 1810. This is the famous Grito de Dolores, the 16th of September, kind of recognized as as Mexico's Independence Day, when a a parish priest in Dolores, este, in Dolores, Guanajuato, unleashes this this cry of. of of centuries of of frustration with Spanish rule in Mexico and sets off the the War of Mexican Independence. And it kind of snowballs within a week of of launching this cry. This movement has swelled and there's thousands of followers down in Guanajuato and they've they've conquered the city of Celaya. And then a few weeks later, they conquer the city itself of Guanajuato. And it just kind of takes on its own momentum. And eventually this army is, is descending toward Mexico City. Well, at the same time, or around the same time, San Antonio gets wind of this, and San Antonio too is, is able to kind of unleash some of its frustration at this point with, with a couple centuries of Spanish rule, and you know, San Antonio had already kind of established a reputation for itself as, as a bit of a thorn in the side of vice regal and, and Spanish authorities. It was very independent. Um, And it was very vocal uh, about its independence, and and it was very vocal, too, about its sense of of neglect at the the hands of Spanish rule being so, so, so far removed. And, of course, our our, our famed Canary Islanders, who set up the first civil government here, developed this tradition over the first hundred years of the city's history of a really, really proactive self-government. And so every little attempt at kind of meddling from from the center, from Mexico City, or, 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 or from Spain, starts to feel like an imposition. And so anyway, this all comes to a head in San Antonio on January 22nd, 1811, when the citizens of San Antonio, the militia of San Antonio, uh, kind of rise up and, and, and capture. They wait for the Spanish governor to, to wake up that morning, and they, they capture him as he walks out onto the Plaza de Armas, and they put him in chains, and they send him down to Coahuila and, and declare themselves in alliance with Father Hidalgo's revolution. Unfortunately... Father Hidalgo's revolt starts to not go so well. News starts to trickle back. There's atrocities perpetrated. Uh, Also, the the Spanish royalist forces kind of regroup and regather and start to beat back some of these these revolutionary movements. Some rumors of that trickle up to San Antonio. Also should be said, too, that the the revolutionary junta, led by uh, de las Casas here, Juan Bautista de las Casas, starts to overreach. They start confiscating, confiscating properties. It becomes a bit of a kind of a, a pogrom or a purge. Pretty soon he starts even confiscating properties of some of the people that had supported him. And so just about six weeks after this has started, it falls apart. And so there's a counter-revolt. And so it's plotted at the Zambrano house uh, up in in, in, uh, in River Road neighborhood today with Manuel Zambrano, who Zambrano himself was a very active uh, royalist. Uh, but he even gathers around him a lot of other kind of traditional Republicans and stuff, too, showing that there was kind of broad-based exhaustion with the revolt, at least at this point in 1811. But like the Delgados and the Seguins, all these people are joining with the Royalists at this moment. So six weeks after it started, this counter-revolutionary force waits in the Plaza de Armas for uh, De Las Casas to walk out of his house. They capture him. He gets sent now down in chains uh, to Coahuila and is actually promptly executed. An interesting thing that happens, though, is that when the Spanish governor had been sent down into Coahuila from San Antonio, he was imprisoned on a ranch in Coahuila that belonged to a man named Ignacio Elizondo. And Elizondo was, was, was he was a younger officer, he was a nobleman, but he was trying to feel out the, the, the politics of the revolutionary movement that was going on in Mexico at this time. And eventually Elizondo, who had initially aligned himself uh, as, a, as a bit of a, of, a, of a revolutionary, this is why he is housing Salcedo at his ranch, changes his mind <laughs> and decides he's going to go back to the royalist side now. So he and Governor Salcedo escape, and as they escape into Coahuila, Father Hidalgo also happens to be retreating back through Coahuila. So Father Hidalgo had made it all the way to the gates of Mexico City, basically, with a a huge army of 70,000 men, but but something happens. It's a bit of a historical mystery. The movement loses steam, and eventually he retreats, and soon he's being pursued by royalist armies all the way back up through central Mexico, up through the highlands, Zacatecas, uh, uh, Querétaro, all the way up through, through Saltillo. And eventually, as he's marching between Saltillo and Monclova, He's ambushed, and he's ambushed by this same Spanish governor from, from, from Texas who had just recently escaped his, 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 uh, his chains. So they ambush him in at this place called Acatita de, de Bajan, which, are, which is between uh, Saltillo and Monclova. Um, actually, the Baron de Bastrop plays a role here also as, as one of the royalist uh, people that kind of traps him. So he, he's got a complicated history in this, too. But four days before this happens. A, mission, or a, 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 a an expeditionary shows up, another revolutionary from the Rio Grande Valley. And this is a guy named Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara. And this is a fascinating character from, from Texas frontier history. So he, he's born into one of the, the first families of Revilla, of, of one of the cities of the Rio Grande Valley there. And you know, again, it's, it's first families is, I say that with air quotes a little bit too, this is not a prosperous settlement. I mean, these, these are ranchers and and, and sustenance farmers and merchants to, to a lesser extent. But anyway, he's born in this family, and he becomes radicalized pretty early. Him and his brothers, one of his other brothers is a priest, and they become pretty radical uh, Republicans, is the word. And so, these are two terms you're going to hear here, and you know they, they don't tie to our, our modern usages of the words, but but, but here. The factions that we get split up in are the royalists and, and republicans, republicans being kind of a term for anti-royalists, this is anti-monarchical, and so they become very, very, very radical uh, r- republicans, and he becomes a bit of a propagandist, and he, as soon as Hidalgo raises up the, the revolt, he, he becomes a very animated supporter of this revolt, and so he goes and seeks him out. He goes and seeks him out and catches up with him there in Coahuila, and there Hidalgo kind of gives him a commission. He makes him his plenipotentiary. his ambassador to the United States. He wants to send him to the United States to go help raise money and fund uh, and, and, and men, perhaps, for, for their cause. So he, he escapes. So he escapes four days before uh, Hidalgo is, is ambushed. Hidalgo, incidentally, he was trying to get to San Antonio. He, he, was, he was en route to San Antonio because it was so remote, because it had such a tradition of being anti-monarchical and anti-royalist, but obviously he didn't make it. Father Hidalgo was executed soon thereafter. But uh, Gutierrez de Lara goes on this incredible journey overland First to New Orleans, and then on foot all the way to Washington D.C., where he actually eventually meets with the Secretary of State. He meets with uh, James Monroe, then briefly with President Madison, and he, he, has, a, he has a journey. He has a diary of, of, of this, this journal, and it's it's really really remarkable because it's a bit of a mix of like an adventure tale with a bit of Alexis de Tocqueville, kind of his impressions of of the young American Republic. And but but to give you a flavor for for the kind of person he is too, like he's not just an academic or an intellectual revolutionary. I mean, he's a He's a hands on kind of guy and a hands on kind of kind of fighter he he tells he tells rather elliptically one anecdote about how so the spanish the spanish king monarchical forces had got wind of what he was doing that he was headed to to d c as as uh as hidalgo's uh uh ambassador and they send agents after him to kill him and so he writes about this in his diary, and all he says is i don't carry my arms to play with, which it seems to be the suggestion that he finished off these agents so So anyway, but this is, there'll be later anecdotes from battles where some of the Anglo-American accounts will will record him mistakenly as a blacksmith by trade. But it doesn't seem that he was actually trained as a blacksmith, it just seems that at some point in the battle somebody needed some guns repaired and and he got down there with a hammer and on his hands and knees and started repairing them himself. So he's a very hands-on leader and he's very charismatic. So even though he doesn't win really any formal support from the United States government, recall at this point, this is 1812, the United States is about to end up in war uh, war with its old imperial master. And in Louisiana, he starts building up this, uh, th- this, this, this fascinating force. Um, so, so he ends up spending a lot of time in New Orleans and a lot of time in Natchitoches. And at this time, Natchitoches, Louisiana, not to be confused with Nacogdoches, Texas, it, it, is really kind of, and, and, and most of Louisiana, is still kind of a hotbed of political intrigue. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, what's, what's the Humphrey Bogart movie? Casablanca. You know, it's, Casa, it's Casablanca, you know, of, 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 of this period. Of You know, remember, this is 1812. It was only 1803 that Louisiana had entered the United States, and it was three years before that where it had been a part of Spain still, too. So anyway, it's, it's, it's this real hot bed of intrigue, and Gutierrez de Lara starts building this, uh, this, this force, this consortium of, of allies it's anchored by a bunch of Tejanos, a bunch of Tejanos who have already had to kind of flee Texas because uh, of Hidalgo's revolt has collapsed. And so there's already a, you know, a couple hundred Tejanos that are over there conspiring and plotting, and, and a bunch of them with ties to names that you'll all recognize, the Navarros, Ruizes, Beramendis, Arrocha, Leal, Delgado, all, all, all these kind of families have links over here. But he also links up with a bunch of of veterans of the Aaron Burr conspiracy, <laughs> um, and without going too much into this, my my eyes have kind of been been opened to, to this by, by a friend, James Burnson, who's done some great work on this. That you know we're so used to thinking of American history in terms of North and South, uh, particularly in the nineteenth century. But but his his contention is that really for this period, you need to think of it in terms of East and West. <laughs> and what this is, it's it's kind of an army of. Of, of American, uh, Anglo American Westerners. And so uh, in August of 1812, he pulls together this force that's, that's about half Tejanos, about half Anglo American uh, uh, veterans of, of the Burr conspiracy, and also, too, has a fair number of Native American allies. He, he's able to build alliances with, and this is fascinating, the Tonkawas, the Lipan Apaches, and the Comanches. You know, three groups that did not get along with each other that well either. But again, it speaks something to, to, to the charisma of this guy. Uh, in August of 1812, they, they crossed the border. I, I put ERD in there, so they call themselves the Ejército Republicano del Norte, the Republican Army of the North. And again, going back to this, this, this Republican term. So they cross in, in August of 1812. There's a, they meet the small Spanish force that had been sent to, to stop them, led by Juan Manuel Zambrano, whose name I mentioned a moment ago earlier. Um, they, they defeat them. Then, Governor Salcedo, who has returned to San Antonio as governor of Texas. Remember, this was the guy who was led the ambush of of Hidalgo also, is now back in San Antonio, sitting in in, in the the, the governor's mansion. Mansion, in in air quotes again. Salcedo leads an army now out to meet Gutierrez de Lara and the Republican Army of the North. But the Republican Army of the North goes around him. So they act like they're headed to San Antonio, and then they turn down and they head toward Goliad. And so they end up in Goliad. First it starts out, they're laying siege, the Republican Army of the North is laying siege to this very small uh, royalist army that's there. They defeat them. Actually, a lot of the the royalists defect into the Republican army. But then Salcedo shows up with the rest of his royalist army and they surround the Republicans there. And it ends up in a month, many month long siege. And eventually, the royalists try to attack the Republican forces there. They lose, they're defeated. And, and the, total, the momentum totally shifts. <laughs> Suddenly, a bunch of the Royalists switch sides. <laughs> they come over to the Republican Army. And before you know it, within the course of about a week, it's, it's the Royalist Army that's in retreat back to San Antonio. This is actually when Jose Francisco Ruiz switches sides. So before this, he, was, he may have actually switched a little bit before. There's some evidence that he was passing information beforehand to the Republican forces. But anyway, he formally switches at this point. So then the, the Republicans pursue Salcedo back to San Antonio. They defeat him in March of 1813 at the Battle of Rosillo. Um, they capture the, the governor and his top officers. Um, they execute them in a rather controversial uh, uh, flair. But they establish themselves in San Antonio, a, another Spanish force led by Ignacio Elizondo. Remember, this was the flip-flopping guy who had imprisoned Salcedo, but he's now a solid royalist. He marches up to meet the Republican army again, and he's defeated in June of 1813 at the Battle of Palasan. And so in the summer of 1813, you have this incredible picture where, where Texas at least according to one account, has become the first province in the Spanish-speaking world to entirely rid itself of Spanish royalist forces. And, you know, these movements are kicking off throughout Latin America at this point. Spain is deeply destabilized by the Napoleonic Wars and the Napoleonic invasion and uh, Napoleon putting his brother on the throne in Spain. So, anyway. But what also happens, too, is that on April 6th, 1813, this republican movement creates and, and, and publishes what, what is arguably the first Declaration of Independence in the Spanish-speaking world, too. This document is from the Archivo General de la Nación de la Nación in Mexico City that uh, we fished it out, or a, a friend went and, and was able to actually photograph it for us. So this is, this is the heading here, Nos el pueblo de la provincia de Texas, We the People of the Province of Texas. So they published this on, on April 6, 1813. It's, it's in Spanish, and I'll, I'll, I'll translate a few pieces of these but it's, it's a really incredible document, because again, I think it speaks to a bit of the charisma of the leadership of this movement, the way the way that it's it's appealing to Anglo-American tradition, to continental Hispanic tradition, and the way it tries to kind of wrap it all up and, and, and really strengthen this alliance that's been built. So it starts off here: No de la provincia de Texas jurando al juez supremo. So swearing by the the supreme judge of the universe, the rightness of our intentions. You know, we declare that the chains that have that have bound us uh, under the domination of European Spain are forever dissolved. Uh, uh, a relation de las causas, so uh, uh, an account of the causes that have brought about the current situation, the current measure, uh, is owed to to our dignity and to the opinions of the world. This this hopefully sounds a lot to you like some of the opening lines of the Declaration of Indo- the American Declaration of Independence. And I, I'd argue that that's very conscientious. That they're very much uh, in, in, very conscious. They're, they're very informed by this. And part of the proof of this is when you go through this document. And they talk about these things. There, there, there's various appeals to this idea of derecho natural of natural law, which this is a solidly Anglo tradition. This is the tradition of Locke and, and, and Bentham and, and, and uh, all the and John Stuart Mill. You know, this is not the continental Hispanic tradition. And so, and even 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 the phrasing of No el pueblo de la provincia de Texas. When you look at some of the later uh, declarations of independence in other parts of Latin America, and even in Spain itself with the, the Constitution of Cádiz. The authority is always invoked as, as, you know, we, we, the power of, of this Congress assembled. We, we, the authority is not deriving from from the people anyway. At least that convention is is a very kind of Anglo uh, Anglo American convention, but. What I want to highlight here as well is that as they move through the document, they also start to make references to things like the derechos sagrados del hombre, the sacred rights of man. That's a French, that's a continental kind of notion, you know, that, that's coming through there. And they'll also make various references to, to, to their Catholic tradition, to, to, to their Catholic heritage, and to these other things. And, and even as they, as they get to the end of the document too, they 're going to swear kind of their allegiance with these other movements that are going on in deep, deeper into mexico too. so they're they're acknowledging this other tradition, this North American tradition that, that they're a part of, that some of their supporters are coming from, but they're also firmly rooting themselves in this this Hispanic tradition that they view as as, as kind of their their path forward. Lorenzo de Savala, who's the you know, first vice president of Texas writes this incredible book in 1834. He goes to the United States, does a tour of the United States, just like de Tocqueville, except he does it a year earlier, publishes his book, also in Paris, a year before de Tocqueville. My, my argument is it needs to replace de Tocqueville in Texas schools, because it's such a better, I think, more relevant account. You know, Rather than a French aristocrat, you've got like, the guy who becomes the first vice president of, of Texas and is coming from the Mexican tradition. But he talks about kind of his vision or his dream of Texas, which I think is really first embodied here in 1813. This is a generation prior which is this idea of, of trying, to pre, trying to take advantage of this kind of new North American system of government, but by, by, by preserving the, the Spanish traditions and customs. and in the, in the, the, That's kind of the ideal, is you, you can preserve, achieve the autonomy of this kind of new system of government while retaining continuity with, with this other tradition that, that they're a part of. Anyway, so the, you know, the last part here is to give more weight to this declaration and inspire just confidence. Uh, We swear in the the name of the Holy Ghost, uh, all of us collectively and each one individually, to our fellow men uh, in all parts of the the Republic uh, and in in front of the universe that we will defend and maintain uh, our principles and our country with our lives and our sacred honor, is basically the idea. This is the line that it's invoking, you know, from from whatever. Hasta la ultima extremidad, until the ultimate extremity. And unfortunately, that's exactly what will happen. August 18th, 1813. All right, here's the outline of the battle. First, what you need to know is Gutierrez de Lara has been deposed. There's been a coup against him. What happens is at some point in, after the Battle of Alasan, in, in July of 1813, another figure appears named José Álvarez de Toledo. And this guy shows up, and he, he's a Spanish nobleman. You know, he's kind of, well, he's young. He's got big medals on his chest, and he just kind of, he just kind of radiates something. You know, and, and he really kind of impresses people. And Gutierrez de Lara's own revolutionary junta votes to basically depose him. So they depose him. He goes to Louisiana in exile, and they appoint this new guy to be the, the commanding general of this Republican army of the north. So Toledo has very little, very little confidence from some of the key officers in this army, most notably uh, Menchaca. M- Miguel Menchaca is, is, is a big Gutierrez de Lara guy, does not like this guy. But some of, some of the other important leaders, too, of the Anglo-American forces and others, don't really have the, the confidence in this guy. They march down on the, the morning, uh, the, the days before the battle. Early, earlier in the morning on August 18th, they set up an ambush somewhere near the Medina River. The idea is that they know that Arredondo, who's the commander of the Spanish Royalist Force, they know that he's got to come up this way. And they're going to surprise him. They're going to surprise him in the road and then just, just clobber him. This Republican army of the north has never lost a battle. And they've always won by being aggressive. Arredondo is a very, very experienced general, however. He sends forward a cavalry screening force. So he has he has 1,830 men. He sends forward about 300 of them under Ignacio Elizondo, same guy who's been defeated, who was part of whatever. He's still back. He sends them forward under Elizondo, and one of these riders, one of the scouts amongst Elizondo's riders, rides up to within like 50 or 60 yards of this ambush line. And you know they're sitting there just waiting, you know, trying to try, trying not to shoot, trying not to give away their position. And somebody fires. Somebody can't can't hold back. Bam! Four, five, six six shots ring out. They've given up their position. The worst part is they didn't even hit the guy, so the guy, the guy rides off, but, but anyway, he's, he, he, you know, the, their position's been blown, Elizondo marches forward and, and kind of engages the Republicans, who again are super aggressive, they realize that, that, that their cover's been blown, and so they march down, they march south now to try and engage with Elizondo, because they think it's the main army. They think they're, they're, they're going to battle with the main army, and they start to defeat them. They start to beat them. The Republicans numbered you know, more than 1,000, maybe 1,400 men or something like that. They're defeating this little 300-man cavalry force. But So, the 300 man cavalry force under Elizondo starts retreating and retreats back and back and back and back. And this is where Arredondo has his own ambush set up. So, Arredondo has set up his own trap somewhere. He puts his men in a V shape. He puts the cavalry or the artillery in the center, I think, and the, and the infantry on the wings. I'm forgetting now. I may have that reversed. And, and, and sure enough, Elizondo leads, draws the Republican army back into this trap. Remember, it is uh, August, it is hot. There is no water between where they started and where they're following. They follow them, depending on the accounts, like four to six miles before they finally w- stumble into this ambush. They are thirsty, they are tired. They're cannons, they're having to drag through the sand. It is like beach sand in this area. It's called the Encinal de Medina. It's called the Encinal because Encinos, oak trees, grow there. These oak trees grow there because of the sandy soil. It's the outcropping of, of the Carrizo sandstone, the Carrizo formation. They're just depleted and they just stumble into this ambush. But they put up a good fight for two to four hours, they slug it back and forth with each other. Most of the accounts seem to indicate that the Republicans were on the brink of, of maybe winning the battle. But then Arredondo comes up with a ruse. He has his trumpeters play the notes of victory. He has, them, he has them play the victory song. And so hearing the victory song, his own soldiers are animated and they kind of step back forward and the Republicans just collapse. They, they, think, they've been, they think they've been defeated. Suddenly it's every man for himself. They start fleeing. It's it's just, and from there it's a running massacre back to the Medina River. So there's no quarter given. They'll kill something like a thousand men on on the field of battle over the course of the day. And unfortunately that's not even the worst of it. You know, from there they they follow into the city of San Antonio the next day. There's something like 300 men that are holed up in San Fernando Cathedral who are unceremoniously yanked out and and executed, some of them right there. Sorry, first actually they're stuffed into a a small building for the first night where eight, eight or 18 of them suffocate depending on your account. And then over the next 90 days, he pulls out basically three a day and just executes them against the wall. So he, by his own account, Aredondo will kill 327 civilian men in, in the city, and it's even worse for the women. So, so, so the women are imprisoned in this building called La Quinta, which sits back on, uh, near where the, the parking garage for, for the Bear County Courthouse is, to, to, is today, or would have sat there. They're imprisoned in there for 54 days and made to basically grind corn 20 hours a day, basically for the men who are outside executing their husbands and fathers and sons. They're fighting back this whole time, by the way, too. And so one of the ways they punish them at some point into this 54-day period is he throws the children out. Arredondo throws the children out, of the, out, out onto the street. So like these women can hear their children crying for food, begging for food. One, one woman's baby dies because they throw a baby out on the street, a, nurse, a nursing child. The, the food, when, when the children are asking, they're screaming inside the building, like, what do we do? And the mothers are screaming, like, beg for alms. That's all you can do. So it's this, this terrible, terrible account. And there, there is an account of it, which we've translated into English, and which you can find on, on the, the website uh, or on the podcast, which we actually recorded with uh, Joe Arciniega, for, for any of you guys who know him, who really did an incredible rendition of, of this account. But th- the important thing is to appreciate the trauma that this inflicts on an entire generation of, of, of Texans. This kind of thing depleted, it, it may have killed half of the male population, the European male population of, of Texas at this time, maybe more. The ones who survive flee. Some flee to live with the with the Indians, with the Comanches. Uh, Jose Francisco Ruiz is one of these. Um, others flee to, to Louisiana is a common place. Not all of them make it. Some of them are, 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 are caught. Arredondo sends Elizondo to go pursue them as they're retreating. Um, but the, some of them do make it to Louisiana where they set up lives in Natchitoches for the next eight or nine years, which will also be important years because it's gonna establish a lot of the, the contacts that will later be the, the motivations and even the personal contacts that will drive a lot of Anglo-American Im- immigration in, in the decade following that, when Mexico finally does achieve its independence in 1821. But even when Mexico does achieve its independence, it's deeply unsatisfying because the, what ultimately happens there is that the royalists, people like Arredondo, Flip. <laughs> they decide, you know what, we kind of like this idea of having our own country, but we want to be in charge of it, you know, not the Republican revolutionaries that had led it before. So, this, this is the short version of, uh, of what happens in 1821. So, actually, Arredondo, after 1821, becomes a, the Mexican commandant com, com, of, of the region instead of the Spanish commandant of the region. So, there's no real change of power structures. And, and so, even for, for San Antonians who, who by and large, participated on the Republican side of this, not all of them. We've mentioned the Perez family and the Semperanos and a few others. It's it's very, very, very unsatisfying. And so I I like to show this because jumping forward to 1836, this is a list of the men that were in Juan Seguin's company at the Battle of San Jacinto. The ones in bold are the ones whose direct relatives fought in the Republican Army of the North. The (laughs) ones who were underlined and in bold were ones who were leaders in the Republican Army of the North. So the point is, the, the the Texas Revolution of 1835-36 is is not a new event. It, it is a it is a rematch from 18. Especially when I tell you who was on the royalist side back in 1813. Santa Anna was a young first lieutenant at the Battle of Medina. Urrea, Ugartechea, Filisola were all royalists during the War of of, of Mexican uh, Mexican Independence. So the, these old generational dynamics continue all the way through to 1835-36. And I argue too, and this I, I don't I, I I can't quite prove this, but when Texas goes to choose a name for its, its new country, it chooses the Republic of Texas. The Republic of is not a common convention in English at this time. I will. Someone did call this out on me one time. They said, what about the Republic of Vermont? That's an anachronism. That gets invented in the 1860s and 70s to describe a brief period where Vermont's allegiance or attachment to countries was unclear. But the Republic of, if you will see in the Spanish-speaking world, was the, t- the, the, the term of the day. It was the word of the day for all of these movements in Spanish Latin America, República de because this concept of Republican versus Royalist is, is, is very, very prevalent in the Spanish-speaking world at this time. I would argue that, that, uh, uh, that, that there's some strong influence, if not a very, very conscious invocation of the, of the memory of the Republican Army of the North in the name of the, of the Republic of Texas itself. So, to the Battle of Medina itself, this, that whole story I just told you, the really sad part for me is for such an influential event that left such uh, an impact on, 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 on a generation or several generations of, of Texans, it kills me that we don't know where that battlefield is. <laughs> there, there are at least four, three to four markers today that, 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 that make mention of the Battle of Medina, but there's never really been archeological confirmation of, of any of those. There's never been any kind of muskets or concentration of munitions or something like that to say that this actually is the Battle of Medina. They're based on archival, suppositions uh, ba- based on accounts, where they think it should be, and so so uh, a couple years ago, as a part of of this this podcast that I have here, we started trying to pull together some of the resources and some of the work of a lot of people, like Kay Hines and, and like a lot of others, who have been working on this for, for, for a long time. We, started, we sent out mailers. We sent out thousands of mailers to people in, in the general vicinity of the battle, just asking, like, do you happen to know where it is? <laughs> you know, because I do believe these things have cultural memories, and and, and I will point this out, too, that as I've gone about this now for a couple years, and you collect stories from people, you do get weird concentrations of stories in certain areas that, that seem to be correlating with, with some of the stuff that, that we're finding as well, too. We enlisted we the help of, of, again, dozens of volunteers, too, too many to, to mention. There's Fred Martinez, for some of you that might know him. I'm sure a few of you know her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's Bob Tonhoff. There's some others. So it, 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 anyway, um, and eventually we enlisted the help, too, of, or really, the Texas Historical Commission kind of enlisted our help. They turned their attention to this, and they reached out to, to me and Kay and, and, and wanted to pull together all the work that we had done on it to put some resources toward it. And so they've been a great convener of resources for us, along with the Atascosa County Historical Commission, which every year does their annual symposium on this. And, you know, there's a handful of promising clues that have sat out there over the years. There was a body found in 1968 right here on Blue Wing Road that had a, an enormous lead ball in its neck, and it had buttons on it. That seemed to date from the period of about 1813. And so for a long time, it's been thought to be perhaps a casualty, a, a Republican volunteer retreating from the battle who then dies, or something to that effect. And, and there's a few other little things that turn up musket balls or cannonballs here and there. And there's some really tantalizing mentions about the battlefield and where it might be in the handful of archival accounts that exist out there from various periods. So there's 1815, there's somebody walking through talking about they found the campo, the field of the Battle of Medina. Uh, uh, bones and, and 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 skulls for, for a space of, of nearly an entire league. Um, there's another mention here in, let's see, 1822, where this is a... A a loyal ally of Gutierrez de Lara, who was not at the battle because he was in Louisiana recruiting, who who was there in 1822 when when they go to actually bury the bones from the Battle of Medina. He's citing this lake six miles from Medina. Um, This other one, 1828, uh, the short distance from Rancherías, goes on another one, a small lake, fortified distance six miles from Medina. uh, Something, the next stream of water past the Medina, or is it past another stream of water? this is from jose antonio menchaca who is the the, the nephew of the Tejano leader uh, in the in the battle who, who's recalling this place near the charcos de gallinas este keeping going this is this is from 1898 somebody writing writing about another issue not even writing about the battle of medina but who mentions in passing Toledo's defeat by Arredondo on gallinas creek and this is this is the one that really, really kills me so Kay found this one this is oh I forget, roy hall right yeah roy, roy, roy hall was his name an amateur historian uh, who, who was really fascinated by the, battle, the battlefields of Texas and had made it his life. I think he, even, he made it his honeymoon to, to, to go <laughs> to look at all, all these, different, these different battlefields in, in, in Texas. And so he's writing this letter to another Texas historian uh, at this point about how uh, he finally found the Battle of Medina. So when finally located, I could hardly believe my good fortune for it was, is in the same apparent state now as, as when the battle was fought 119 years ago. And then he stops. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't give any more clues about where that was. He just rolls right into the Battle of Rocio. But ultimately, what really got this kicked off the ground, I would argue, was a strategic partnership with UTSA's Center for Archaeological Research, and especially with the American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project. Avar is interesting because it's a 501c3. They reached out to me through the, one of their listeners who found the podcast. They, they, they were trying to get into Texas to, to expand, expand their work here. So what they are, they're all veterans of, of, of the different uniformed services, trained in archaeology. And the idea is that it serves two purposes. is that One, who better to analyze a battlefield than a veteran? But also, too, it's, it's, it's meant to be a form of rehabilitative therapy, almost, for them. It, it gives veterans you know, a, a chance to return to a mission-oriented uh, objectives in a communal setting. Whenever they go work in a field somewhere, they stay together, uh, they, they bunk together. Anyway, it, it's a really, really positive uh, environment, and they were looking to get into Texas. And of course, a lot of the other Texas battlefields are pretty worked over, but, but they liked the idea of this one. The other advantage that we have with them is that they're using all the same equipment, all the same training. And so you get a really high quality result. If you search an area with, 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 the, with, these, with these folks, there's a lot of integrity to the results that you come up with. So we got out there on February 1st, uh, earlier this year. We searched three sites, about 28 acres is what we covered. There was about 12 volunteers, plus uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Humphrey is, is the, the, the CEO of the organization. You grid out the entire area, and they're in 20 meter by 20 meter blocks, and, and, and you mark off these one and a half meter lanes with three meter lanes in between. And the idea is that you have these, these teams and they're, they're working with a metal detector. They, so they walk through these lanes, scanning back and forth. Every hit, every piece of metal that goes off, somebody drops a flag in. They drop a flag in. Every flag gets dug up. Every artifact gets bagged, geotagged, a GPS location put on it, and looked at. In the course of, of three weeks, we must have pulled out 3,000 artifacts. Artifacts. We found 3,000 pieces of metal is a better way to say that. A lot of fence, you know, fence nails and barbed wire and stuff like that. But on one of the sites, we started to find some really interesting stuff. So uh, this, these are non, well, at least the, the, the half dime is, is non-battle related, but it was kind of cool. It's an 1854 Liberty half dime that, that has buttonholes punched through it. Some, some kind of interesting brass artifacts that we found in this area that, that, that we're still trying to date a little bit. We found a lot of shotgun head stamps. But it's actually non-trivial, because uh, you know some of these, these date back to, to the 1880s, which what it says is that our methodology, our metal detectors are finding stuff that is at least 150 years old, and actually with the dime there, you know, back to 1854, it makes us feel comfortable that there was always some fear that maybe artifacts from the battle could have subsided over the centuries or, or something like that. But no, it seems pretty conclusive that we are finding stuff from, from the near colonial or, or the late colonial period um, out there. All right. So then some of the really exciting stuff. We, started, we did find some musket balls and some pieces of lead sprue. So you know, what I'm not showing you on here is we, we found a lot of modern munitions, 22s and 45s and stuff like that. Those are pretty easy to pick, to, to pick out. You know, they have a different shape. You know, these are you know, perfectly spherical balls, which, and in particular when accompanied by the sprue here, and I, I learned this from, from Kay and Clint McKenzie when we were out in the field, is you know, the, the way the lead balls at the time of, of the battle would have been made is uh, picture a set of pliers with like two ice cream scoops, one on each side, and they close, and there's a little hole in the top, and you pour your molten lead into that little hole, and it makes a sphere, but it's got a little cherry stem on it. So then you've got to clip that cherry stem off, and, and, so, and that's the sprue that you would see there. And what was really cool was that we found a few musket balls that were impacted, that mean they hit something or someone. This was a big one, a 61 to 65 caliber ball, consistent with the period, which tended to use larger caliber munitions. But you can just tell by the way it's deformed, you know, that it hit something. It may have rifling on it, which is not inconsistent with the period. There were some rifles in the period. Well, I forget the name, but we're, we're not certain that, that it's rifling, but there's interesting interesting marks there on it. We found a couple others as well that you can see this one was just flattened. This is a smaller one, but again, consistent with some of the smaller round arms that were used at the time of the battle. And another one. But the really, really exciting one is this one. This is iron, and, and it's still got the stem on it and it, it, it is consistent with grape shot of the period. So grape shot is essentially how you turn a cannon into a shotgun. So you know, a really, really brutal tool of warfare, but the kind of thing you would use at close quarters combat. Most of this battle was fought at like 40 yards of distance from each other, and, and and the diameter of this one in particular is is consistent with some of the grape shot later found at the at the Battle of Resaca de Palma, some of the stuff from the later the beginning of the Mexican War. But again, munitions had a long life during this period. You'd, there's cannons from the Alamo from the 1700s, you know, and, and so what's fascinating about this is that if you find musket balls, that's interesting, but people could have been firing musket balls for a lot of reasons. You could have been hunting, you know, You're hunting a deer or, you know, or, or could have been an engagement with, 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 with an Indian attack or something like that, but to find this, this came out of a cannon, and cannons were not fired as often through, through this area, and the only other round that we have in this area that also came out of a cannon was this blue ball. That ball, this 1.18 caliber ball that was found in the neck of, of, of this blue-wing body, again, also, there's no muskets that fire rounds that big. That came out of a cannonball, too. But what we, went, we did, too, is we took our artifacts and we sent them off to Texas State University, where they have a tool called an XRF, an X-ray fluorescence device, which what it does is it's a non-destructive way to analyze metal objects and it can read the metallurgy from them. So it scans it with a little laser deal, and it looks like a UPC code. You know, like think of HEB when they scan the dog food down in the the bottom of your cart. It it, it scans over it, you set it there for a few minutes, and it'll spit back to you the the, the, the composition of, so each one of these numbers corresponds to an element or or to to some some form of alloy. And you can see, you know, there's a wide variation here all over the place. These are all the lead objects that we sent as, as possibly consistent with the period. But three of them really grouped together three of them were in fact identical matches with each other and they were identical matches with the blue wing ball, which was found in 1968. So that's really, really encouraging <laughs> that we are finding some, some lead munitions that came from the same place as wherever that lead munition that was in the blue wing bodies ball w- w- was, was created to was, was either mined or smelted or something. So it's not conclusive, of course, it's, it's a handful of artifacts. We're talking about a battle that saw 950 cannon rounds fired just by the, the Royalist forces and who knows how many thousands of other munitions. We still have more work to do. So starting here in two weeks, actually, we're going back in the field. Um, we're going to search another, uh, another three sites, at least, um, 40 plus more acres, try and expand upon where we found stuff. But also we, we want to search some of these other uh, claimed sites too. We, we, we want to make sure we're not, we're, we're not suffering from, uh, you know, some kind of, narrow-mindedness or something like that. It's, it, you've got to try and stay open-minded in this. And again, it's one of the great challenges of even reading through the archival records is your mind so wants to, to fixate on one clue or fixate on something and, and, and say, that's it. That's got to be it. That's got to be the spot. And then there's some other contradictory piece out there. So anyway, we're, 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 we're trying to keep our minds open to, to, to all of these things to be able to really dig in and, uh, and continue continue our work. With that, I, I, I will conclude then just with the, the last remark that there, there's something so fitting and so perfect about like if it really can be you know this group of of, of veterans and and which includes people from all over the country too i mean it's we've got local volunteers we've got volunteers from the east coast from the west coast like that's just it's it's just too perfect you know and 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 so i i think we're making positive progress on this i think we're advancing the the scholarship of the battle but i think we're also bringing to light an important period uh, in in texas history in san antonio history that that that, that gets overshadowed uh, too often Thank you guys, and I'll open for questions here.